Well, good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord on this beautiful Sunday. It's beautiful now, may not be beautiful later on this afternoon, but we'll see, won't we, in the rainy season. Uh, We are continuing our study of the book of Romans, and this morning we have progressed as far as Romans 13. So if you want to reach for your Bible or your iPhone and turn to Romans 13, uh, I was originally signed the second half of the chapter, but that got changed, and we're going to do the whole chapter today, which means that we have to move with a little more pace than we ordinarily would have. But this chapter is loaded with insight from the Scripture and we're, uh, we're with, from the Lord, and we're going to do our best to benefit it from this morning. So you guys wake. You need a little joke to kind of get you going? That may help you. All right. There was a Sunday school teacher who was teaching first grade Sunday school, and the topic of her class was Christian marriage. So she asked the question, What have you learned about Christian marriage by watching your mom and your dad? And this little girl piped up and said, well, here's what I've learned. When your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. (laughs) Oh, mercy, it's early in the morning. Okay, Romans 13, we're going to start with the first half of the chapter. Go through that and then we'll finish it. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7. The Word of God reads as follows. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities and ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's just go ahead and read the chapter. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision 
for the flesh to gratify its lust. The grass withers and the fire fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Now this chapter, as I said earlier, is loaded with practical insight in terms of everyday life. Wish we had more time to dig further down into it, but we will make the most of our time this morning. Now, there are three phrases in the chapter that I think are worth noting, and everything in the chapter gathers around these three phrases. The first is verse 1 of chapter 13, which says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. The second phrase is found in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is a fulfillment of the law. And the last important phrase is verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, all that Paul says gathers around those three phrases, so let's, let's look at those closely this morning. The first phrase, let everyone be in subjection to the governing authorities, has to do with the role of the government in the life of a believer. Down through the centuries, government has been a mixed blessing. I think historically we would all say that. But here Paul is trying to set the tone for the function and purpose of government by which God establishes it. So this chapter doesn't necessarily deal with how things are, but it deals with how things should be. So let's look at it with that idealistic standpoint in mind. First it says, let everyone, that means every person, not just referring to believers only, but every person who lives within a certain uh, civil authority, everyone within that government sphere should be in subjection to the governing authorities that have been placed over it. Now, that means everyone should place themselves in submission or in accordance with governing authorities. The word subjection is a military term, which means to fall in line or take your place under the orders that are given to you. So the point of that phrase is very clear. And the governing authorities that you are to fall in line with are those authorities in the positions of government which God has placed over you. So it begins with this admonition, let everyone be in subjection to the government. Now he gives us several reasons why that is necessary. He goes on to say, for there is no authority except from God. Now, you might never have thought of it before, but all government, including the government of, for, and by the people of the United States of America, no government has authority except what God has given to it. Government authority is ordained by God. It is not merely a human institution. And this word ordained by God is the same word that Paul uses in the book of Acts when he talks about himself being appointed as an apostle. So it's a very strong word and it suggests clearly that there is linkage between the existence of government and the divine providence of God. All political government derives its authority not from the consent of the governed, but from the pleasure of God Almighty. In other words, from God above, government derives its authority not from the governed beneath. Now, you might have heard that before. Those quotes are from the lore of American history when it was first getting started. If that is the case, that all government is appointed by God 
Paul goes on to say, Therefore, whoever resists God's authority of government will incur judgment. Rebellion against government is rebellion against God. Hmm. Rebellion brings consequences upon the rebellious. So Paul makes his case. Now, is the government something we're supposed to live in fear of? No. He goes on to say, if we comply with the government, we have nothing to fear. The punitive function of the government applies only to those who uh, live in noncompliance. If we obey the law and live in peace, we will live without the fear of punishment from the government. Now, Paul pushes it even a step further in the next verse when he says, government officials are the servants or ministers of God. You ever thought of government officials as pastors or ministers? That's the word he uses here. And the word servant here or minister is the word liturgia from which we get the word liturgy in church. How interesting. They are described, government officials are described here in the passage as agents of wrath to bring punishment on wrongdoers. So these people are serving the purposes of God. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but the passage goes on to say, for conscience' sake. And what that means is this, regardless of what you think about a certain law, like the speed limit being too broad or too narrow, or how much we're being taxed by the government, which is a a point of concern for most all of us, the Scripture prescribes here that we are to be in compliance with government officials and that it's not only a behavior toward those officials and requirements, but it's a matter of conscience before God. In other words, when you think about cheating on your income taxes, hopefully the conscience will prick you to know that you need to do what is obedient to the governing authorities. So it's not just an outward conformity, but it is also an inward matter of being, of being obeying government officials as a matter of conscience. So in conclusion, obedience is a matter of conscience done as unto the Lord. Now again, we're not addressing those governments that have overstepped their boundaries and have become oppressive to people. We're only addressing government in an ideal sense of the word. So given that, here's what we are supposed to do. Pay your taxes. Do not avoid them. Give to those honor to whom honor is due, custom to who custom is due. So in other words, we as Christians are supposed to be law-abiding citizens as unto the Lord. God-ordained authority is a prerequisite of God for God's ordained order. Now, this passage struck me in a very practical way uh, as follows. I grew up uh, a religious home, in a religious home, and then from age 14 to age 20, I threw it all under the bus, became a card-carrying, hell-raising agnostic, atheist, probably all the above along the way. And I lived in a dry county in the city of Gadsden, Alabama, where you could not buy alcohol over the counter. And of course, in high school, we weren't about to have that. So we knew how to get to the next county and get to the bootleggers and do those things that caused us to break the law as a, me, as a, as a way of life. Driving, drinking and driving was something we did all the time. I was in two car accidents and uh, driving with two and experienced a lot more and had lots of friends killed. And I should have been killed probably somewhere along the way. And then I became a Christian at age 20. And I remember one day walking down the street seeing a police officer and not being threatened by his presence. 
but actually appreciating that he was there to try to keep law and order. And then a few weeks later, I actually spoke to a policeman. So how are you doing today? Where in my own raising days, policemen were folks you avoided. You ran from them. You didn't get near those people. They would just get you into, they would just get you into trouble. So as time went on, I began to enjoy a harmonious relationship with the civil authorities. And since that time, I have a great relationship with the security guys that work here at Apostles. Love those guys, Timothy and, and others. And this is what God has for us, is a, a mindset of obeying civil authorities as unto the Lord. And when we do that, we don't have to fear the government, but we live obedient lives unto the Lord and, and unto those uh, civil uh, precepts and statutes that are around us. And as a result, we live in peace and harmony with civil authorities. Now, I'm not sure what it's been like for you, but for me, that was a rather high upgrade for me from my lost days to my Christian days to find myself at peace with government authorities. That's what Paul is after in the passage. But he goes on to say in the second third of the chapter that there's something much higher than the civil law. There is what's called the moral law. And notice the phrase in this section of the chapter. It says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, verse 10. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul shifts his discussion from the civil law to the moral law. And we know there is direct linkage between the moral law and God because God communicated the moral law to us uh, in the most notable way in the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai back in the book of Exodus. Now, follow along with me what Paul is saying in this chapter. The Bible says that the law is holy, righteous, and good. Now, our sin nature that likes to be autonomous and do whatever we want to do, we don't like rules and laws and guidelines. We have to be reminded that laws and rules and guidelines are good, and Paul says that throughout the New Testament. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The law as given to Moses in the Ten Commandments had two tables. There was the first table that dealt with our relationship with God. Then there was a second table that dealt with our relationship with one another. When Jesus came onto the scene, he was asked at one point, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus reduced the Ten Commandments to two commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul, further in the New Testament, reduces the whole law to one simple word, the law of love. And he says that in this passage. He says it most clearly in the epistle to Galatians, but he says it here. That when we fulfill the law, love is the fulfillment of the entire law. So what the law calls us to, and the law of God flows out of the character of God, is to be godlike, which is to be loving people. So all these laws and rules and guidelines that sometimes feel like they cramp our style, they're really there to help us realize that the commands of the law are the rails upon which love travels from one heart to the next. And in fact, the word sin means transgression or, in effect, violation of the law. So when we don't follow the law, we fall short, wound and hurt and damage others, but when we follow the law... We are in compliance with what God has laid down for us, and we do good to those who are around us. 
Now, Paul goes on to quote in the second third of the chapter, the second table of the law, almost all of it. He says, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, and don't covet. And he said all other commandments, and he's referring to all the other commandments that God gives to us. All these other commandments can be summed up with this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. Now, notice what's happening here is that when it comes to the civil law, you're kind of only required to obey that externally. For instance, if it says go 55 miles an hour on the road you're traveling on and you stay within 55 miles an hour, you're in compliance with the law because behaviorally you're doing what it says to do. No matter what you feel in your heart, you can be mad as a hornet at going slow, sometimes I'm that way, at 55 miles an hour, but if you're going 55 miles an hour, you're in compliance with the civil law. But the moral law requires to go further. It's not just a matter of behavior. It's a matter of the heart. And so what God requires of us is to go 55 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour speed zone and to love it, <laughs> to like that. I'm driving safely. I'm protecting my interest in the interest of others. That's what is required of us. So here's the way you want to see it. Compliance to the moral law that God gives to us almost always ensures compliance to the civil law. So therefore, we as believers, if we just follow the law, the law of love that God has laid down for us, if we fully fulfill that and comply with it, we should be at peace and at ease with the civil authorities. I never worry about civil authorities anymore like I used to be so paranoid of them when I was a hell-raising teenager because I'm in compliance with the law of God, which almost always puts me in compliance with the laws of the government. And so this is what Paul is seeking for us here. And notice that the, the law is summed up in the simple word love. Remember the decade of the 60s, how tumultuous it was? We saw the assassinations of JFK, MLK, and RFK. And a certain despair settled over our land. We seemed powerless as our leaders were being gunned down. And right in the middle of that decade, there was a little catchy song that was sung by Jackie DeShannon called, What the World Needs Now is Love. Love, sweet love. Not just for some, but for everyone. And we as Christians, when we are in alignment and compliance with the Word and the will of God, we should be the most loving of people. And we should be the ones injecting love into a world of cruelty and hate and pain. We are in best position to do that. And the Scripture clearly says we love because God first loved us. Starts in the home, moves out into your community and your places where you work, your neighborhoods. Starts there, but emanates from our relationship with God. What the world needs now and more so now than ever before. What the world needs is love. And that's what Paul clearly lays down the first half of the two-thirds of the chapter. Now we get to the final four verses. And here Paul adds a note of urgency to what he's saying. He says, because you know the time, or doing this knowing the time. 
Now, Paul is here addressing the time in which we live. There are two words for time in the New Testament. There's the word chronos, which deals with the passing of time, and there's the word kairos, which deals with the quality of time. The passing of time is like this. How much time did you spend with someone? The the second word, quality of time, is how was your time with someone? One deals with the passing of time, the other deals with quality of time. We talk about having quality time in our most significant relationships. Well, he uses the word here for quality of time. In other words, we're now living in the final epoch of biblical history, and we want you to live your life to the highest quality that you can. And he goes on to say, talk about the time we're in. He says, salvation is now nearer to us than when we believe. You realize with every beat of your heart and every day that passes, you are one heartbeat or one day closer to meeting the Lord. We are one heartbeat closer and one day, one hour uh, closer, one day closer to the second coming of the Lord. And we're living in that period of time which is called the last days, in which we are moving toward the blessed hope of the second coming of the Lord. Therefore, if you're sluggish, or you're not alert, or you're distracted, Paul says here in these last four verses, snap out of it, wake up. And he uses very specific language here. He says, the hour has come for you to wake up out of your sleep. He nudges those that are sleeping, that are distracted and not paying attention. Verse 12, he says, the night is gone and the day is at hand. This is a Hebrew construction here. In the Old Testament, we, we tend to think day comes first and then night, not in the Old Testament mindset. In the book of Genesis chapter 1, it says, first there was evening and then there was day, one day. First there was second there was evening, then there was day, day two. So evening comes first and then the day. And when Paul says the evening is gone, the day is at hand, he's saying we're nearing the end of the day. But because the day is here, we're walking in the light. We're walking in the light of God's presence and the light of God's word, and we should be children of light. Put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And he says in verse 13, and I love this simple phrase, he says, let us walk properly in the daytime. That word properly means decently. You ever hear the comment, whatever happened to common decency? That's what this word refers to. Let us behave with decency. That means to behave in such a way that we are living honorably, respectfully, and gracefully toward others. He specifically says, put aside the deeds of darkness. And he mentions six deeds of darkness here, and I'll just touch on them briefly. The first, he says, is let us walk properly or decently as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness. Those are very, very weighty words. In the days of the Roman Empire, when this was written, The Romans used to parade through the cities of Rome, and of course this epistle is written to the church at Rome. The Romans used to parade through the city at night with torches, half drunk, singing songs to their gods and their goddesses, which inevitably led to sexual excess. And they did these things publicly in an open view for all to see. Paul says, put that aside. Those drunken parades in the middle of the night that march in front of your house that lead to nothing good, lay them aside. 
orgies and drunkenness, drop them. Not in sexual immorality and in sensuality, which is what flows out of the parades in the middle of the night. And then he says, also put aside quarreling and jealousy. Now, that's not just something the world gets caught up in, but ashamedly, the church gets caught up in it too. As a pastor, I hear stories rather frequently of people in churches being really angry at one another, really mad. You ever hear about the two churches that tried to merge and they couldn't agree over whether to use the word debts or trespasses in the Lord's Prayer, so they went through separate ways and had two different churches? Seems kind of picky, doesn't it? It's kind of the way we react. Not only is this true of the culture, it's true of the church. We're here as members of the body of Christ who always behave decently and honorably as unto the Lord, behaving um, harmoniously toward one another. And if there's any other unresolved conflict between us, the Scripture is very clear about how to resolve that and resolve it we should before we come to worship the next Lord's Day. So Paul says, let us walk decently. Let us live not as unto the deeds of darkness, but unto the deeds of light. Now notice the last verse. This is a power pack of a verse. It says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now here's the concluding verse of the chapter. And here's what he's saying. We are to put on the Lord Jesus. We've been talking about the civil law. We've been talking about the moral law. And now we're need, we need to talk for just a minute about the one person who fulfilled the moral law to a T in his lifetime, and that's the person of Jesus. Let's kind of lay the law aside for just a minute, and let's look at a person, a person who lived in total compliance with the perfect will of God every single step of the way. The Scripture says, put him on. Set your eyes upon him and follow his perfect example. His perfect example. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means if you're going to do that is that you've also got to lay aside every single vestige of that old man, that old sin nature that continues to bedevil you every single day. Put on the Lord Jesus, put off that old man. And this word make no provision means to give no forethought. Don't consider Don't fantasize. Don't romanticize. Doing those things that give you only sinful pleasure. Don't even give those things a thought. Don't even think about it. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. A couple of stories and I'll conclude. Years ago in the city of Chicago, there was a Barber's Convention. And there was a gentleman who was trying to promote the Barber's Convention in Chicago. So he went out and he found a man who lived on the street. And this man was very disheveled, untrimmed beard, filthy clothes. And he asked this fellow if he would be willing to cooperate with him in this promotional thing that he was going to do for the Barber's Convention. And the guy said, yes. So he stood him up, and he took a picture of him in his disheveled condition. And then he took this gentleman to one of the barbers and said, I want you to do what you normally do for people. I want you to clean them up. So the barber shaved the guy and gave him a hair trim, and the the promo promo guy brought a a new suit and put it on this guy and um, 
took a picture of him after the barbers had cleaned him up. And the contrast between the guy when he was in the street condition versus the condition he was in once he had been taken care of by the barbers was rather stark because he took a picture of him after he had been cleaned up and he made these life-size photos of them and he put them next to one another and he said, this is what the barbers of America can do for you. Pretty cool idea. Two or three months later, that promo guy decided to go find the gentleman who had been cleaned up and uh, had been treated so well by the barbers to see how he was living. And he had gone back to the previous condition. Hair was waving, beard unshaven, wearing dirty clothes. And so it was rather obvious that the barbers of America, they can do something for you, but they can only change you from the outside. They can't change you from within. Now here's what the passage is saying. You put on the Lord Jesus and God will change you from the inside out. And the Reformation won't be temporary. It will be permanent. When I first became a Christian, I was struck by how the presence of God within me started to change me from the inside out. And I couldn't quite figure out what was going on inside of me because when I became a Christian, I wasn't real sure what I was doing. I just knew that I didn't want to continue to live like a hellraiser. I wasn't sure about this gospel thing. But I said, okay, God, if you're real, make yourself clear to me. Let's see what happens. So I asked Jesus, I invite him into my life, and he comes in, and I start to change from the inside out, and the whole world around me starts to change dramatically. And I've been religious in my younger years, so I tried to behaviorally conform to a set of rituals and standards, never successfully. But all of a sudden, I'd simply put my life in God's hands. I put on the Lord Jesus, and my life begins to change permanently from the inside out. And I could never understand what that really was until I heard a lady talking one time, and she said this. And listen to me closely. With this, I'll conclude. When you become a Christian, it's not like God puts new clothes on an old person. But what He does is he puts a new person in old clothes. And the new person slowly sheds those old garments that no longer fit a man who has the life of God in his soul. Now that's what Paul is saying here. Put on the Lord Jesus. Make no provision for the flesh. You embrace fully all that God has for you. He will do the changing from the inside out, and it won't be temporary. It won't be for a couple months, folks. It will be for eternity. Let everyone be in subjection to the governing authorities. On a higher level, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. But on the highest level, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. If you can do that, you are centered in the will of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, by your grace, we are forgiven through faith. By your power, we are cleansed. And by your enablement, we are now able to live in compliance with the law, which does no wrong to a neighbor. 
which closely embodies the perfection of Jesus and brings nothing but peace, benefit, and profitability to our lives. Thank you, God, that you are the God who was there. You are not silent, but you have spoken. And not only have you spoken, but you have moved in our lives, and now we are empowered to be all that you've ever created or called us to be. Lord, let us happily seize all that is available to us and live in a way that is honorable and respectful toward others in obedience to the civil authorities, in obedience to the moral law, but also, Lord, in conformity to Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. In his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Thank you. Will you stand with me as we sing? Here is love, best as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. you